This is Commonplace, the show about creative people and the things that inspire them. I'm Nathan Thomas. Today on the show, we're doing things a little bit differently to celebrate the one-year anniversary of doing the show. Today's interview subject is me. Leading the conversation is public radio storyteller Zach Harold. His latest piece is a profile of a craftsman who makes bamboo fishing rods by hand. He's also made really brilliant audio stories about hot dogs, pool candy, and a welder that restores old clocks. He's a journalist I've admired for a long time and an even better friend. In our conversation, we talk about my first experiences making art, finding community in a scene to identify with in college, and the thought process behind the podcast. Thanks for letting me do this. This is a cool this is a cool uh, turning of the tables because as a faithful listener to commonplace um, I think we get a little bit of Nathan Thomas lore throughout the episodes, but it's nice to, to just sit down and, and uh, for those of you that don't know you very well, and I don't actually know you very well. We've been online friends for a long time, but this is the first time we've actually met in person. Um, I'm, I'm interested to learn about the guy who created a really cool podcast about West Virginia creatives. Well, I appreciate that. And yeah, the like backstory of myself is definitely scattered throughout the episodes. You can kind of piece it together, but also I'm very like, I, I know that this isn't about me. The like this episode of the show is, but an average episode of commonplace isn't about me so I will not include like my own perspective sometimes or like my own quote-unquote backstory or whatever I do appreciate that about the way about your interviews is because some podcasts well sometimes I'll do the backstory in the moment in the room and then I'll cut all that stuff out just and just get to the question uh, because like we know adding that backstory can sometimes unlock a better, deeper answer yeah. or whatever, better sound. But your audience doesn't want But to it's not that. relevant to whoever to I'm interviewing or the listener. And I'm not above silencing myself. That is noble. Um, well, let's start, uh, let's start as far back as we can go. Um, were you a, always a creative person was and and what was what shape did that take were you a kid that drew all the time were you interested in music how far back does your creative life go I mean I've played guitar forever but I'm not that good at it like I really only do basic power chords and strumming it's never been a thing that I've had maybe at one time it was like the ambition to be in a band be a rock star that sort of thing but for the most part, it was just playing in the bedroom, pulling up whatever song I liked on Ultimate Guitar and just kind of figuring out the chords. So music was the art form that had you first? It was the thing that I definitely spent the most time thinking about, either that or like movies or something, but I never really got into the idea of like movie making until high school. And even then... I wasn't like the key person in that thing. I was just one of many parts. So uh, what 
what time are we talking about when music? Because music didn't... My experience was very similar. Like, that was the first thing that hooked me into the world of creativity. But that didn't happen until I was in, like, eighth grade. How, how young were you? Probably middle school. Middle school. That seems yeah. like the time when you become aware of music. I became aware of, like, what bands I liked and the kind of sounds that I uh, um, gravitated towards. But also, I was the type who would, like, rather read guitar magazines and, like, profiles of musicians than to actually practice. Like, if I put the time that I put into reading Guitar World into actually practicing the guitar, then I'd be a much better player than I am uh, because I am not good. But I was definitely, I was, I liked the idea of uh, learning about the thing and like learning what like the masters were into. So it was solely in the bedroom? You didn't perform publicly at all? Well, I was briefly in a praise and worship band for about a year. Uh, our name was, what was our name? Um, Imperishable, I think was our name. Um, and I played bass in that. And by played bass, I mean my friend Trey, the guitar player, would come up with the bass part and then teach it to me. Okay. I never wrote like any of my own parts or anything, and they were mostly covers. I see a pretty cool bass sitting over there. That's the same bass that I played. Oh, is it really? And imperishable. It's, it's beautiful. My uh, high school Lake Placid Blue um, SX knockoff uh, precision bass. I love the color, man. Yeah, and we did that for maybe like a year, and then it kind of just fizzled out. So the movie making came after the, the music. So how did you fall into that? The movie making came in the same period as the kind of like praise and worship band stuff. Uh, Interesting. Be, because Were you making my, well, like left behind movies or <laughs> <laughs> we would have made more money if we did that. <laughs> That's true. Um, we, uh, the same guy I was in the band with uh, a guy named Trey who, um, I was just a groomsman at his wedding about a month ago. Um, good guy. Uh, we, we're both into certain YouTubers who would make these like action shorts, comedy shorts or whatever. And we had the thought like, Oh, we could do that. So we would come up with these little like scene ideas. And then he would do most of the shooting, most of the editing, uh, all the like little muzzle flashes that we would put to like make the gun effects look good. He would figure out, I just showed up to his house and did bad acting. So your your role primarily was as as talent on screen talent. Kind of talent and like co director, kind of helping block fight scenes. That's Weird period. <laughs> praise and worship and action scenes. Yeah, that's how we spend our sleepovers. Cool way to spend your sleepovers. Um, but also at that same time, <laughs> I was doing like plays in high school and like high school improv comedy. Where'd you go to high school? Uh, George Washington High School. Okay, because I know in Kanawha County, I went. Uh, um, Kanawha County Capital is the arts magnate, so I didn't know if um, 
So no. what kind of... Uh, what I, kind was a, I was a creaker in the Hillers versus Creakers dynamic. Gotcha. What what kind of plays? Just high school, like... Yeah, just whatever the theater teacher picked out. I would only... We, it's the typical high school thing where you would do a play in the fall and then a musical mm-hmm. in the spring. I never did the musical. I didn't want to dance on stage, and also I'm not a good singer. And I... Honestly, I'm not that good of an actor either. I probably wouldn't do a play now unless like it was like a really like good role or I thought I could do good at it. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was fun. It was um, nice to just hang out with friends after school. It was something to do. Hmm. Although I was terrible at the memorization end of things. Like, I would record myself saying all of my lines and then just listen to that recording on repeat as, like, a memorization tool. That's a really smart idea. It it didn't work, though? It worked somewhat. (laughs) Uh, But one of the plays was a very, like, meta-type thing where there was a play within a play. Oh. And I was the director of the play that's within within the play. play. And uh, what do directors carry around they carry around clipboards so i had a clipboard with me that i had written in longhand all of my lines so if i were to forget something on stage i could just make like a little look at the clipboard and make it seem natural and be able to like have my mind um joggled so you you only took roles from then on that involved clipboards pretty much yeah yeah. well (laughs) i think the cruise directors uh, as long as directors in the title yeah tour director (laughs) tour (laughs) manager whatever uh no the first year i did a play it was the the director within the play the second year i think i was like a tax operative or something like a tax man oh like huh that the oh. first play was called Noises Off. The second was You Can't Take It With You. And I only had one scene in that one too, like early in the first act. So I did my scene and then just hung out backstage for the rest of the play. Were you doing any behind the scenes stuff too? No. no. Like I didn't would, interest you? I mean, I would help like if someone needed like a prop for a certain scene, I'd make sure they had it, but by and large, not really. And when it comes to, I mean, you're, you're doing some music, you're making some movies, you're acting in the theater program and doing the improv comedy. You get to the end of high school and it's time to decide what I'm going to go study in college. Did you have a, like a strong sense that you wanted to pursue something that was creative or was that just the thing you knew how to do, or the thing you were the most interested in so that we'll try this? I've joked before that I'm in the kind of rare group that never changed their college major once they got to college, and it was always journalism. And had you done any journalism? So throughout high school, uh, I would like intermittently do the flip side thing at the Gazette. You were a flip sider too? Oh, yeah. Okay. I would get my $10 or whatever the article paid um, to write about whatever I wanted, really, which was nice. But I think there was the fantasy of like, oh, I'm not that good 
at music, but I still want to be involved with that world. I guess I'll just try to be a music journalist and that whole like almost famous bullshit of tour with the band. So you still kind of get to live the rock star life, but not have to worry about learning scales. <laughs> that is, that is eerily similar. Yeah, no, to, it's, to the way it's like a journalist cliche to a certain extent, or at least like a culture music yeah. writer cliche. Yeah. And I went to Marshall for it. And, you know, four years later, I ended with a degree. But being I, thrown into, but it wasn't just the degree, because I, I feel like coming to Marshall was a turning point in your creative life, too, because mm-hmm. you were exposed to um, more. Because um, Charleston, I love Charleston the scene has never it's it's because Huntington's a college town and you've got Huntington's a town with a college it's not necessarily a college town well, I think there's a difference there's also UC that uh-huh. so you could technically say the same thing about Charles but it's not the same mm-hmm. Huntington has a scene in a way that Charleston Charleston has a music scene but it's lar- and it has an arts scene, but like the stand-up comedy scene has never been able to take off in a big way. So co- coming to, I feel like coming to Huntington was probably that was probably a pretty it was a huge turning yeah. point. Uh, I do think that it is harder for Charleston to unify maybe around a certain venue or a certain art scene or a certain movement because it's so spread out throughout the Kanawha Valley that that's an interesting it point can be kind of annoying like oh if you're in Dunbar are you really going to go to Kanawha City to see a show or participate in a scene or whatever uh and like sometimes you will if it's like cool enough or it piques your interest enough but Huntington, for the most part, it's just all here along the river. Like, yeah, it's kind of like a long city, but it's not that dense. So it was just easier to participate. And also, like, I've never felt as connected to a scene as I have since coming to Marshall, being a part of the art scene here. And that's because, like, yeah, I grew up in... Charleston but it's not like I could hop on a bus or drive or whatever to go where the cool things are like I grew up uh you know over the hill from Charleston like there aren't many sidewalks between Loudondale and and Capitol Street exactly no in fact it's a pain the one time that like I decided like oh I'm gonna walk home for school or whatever from school or whatever it was a major pain in the ass Never going to do that again. So you get to Marshall, and um, do you? How, how do you get connected with the art scene? Is it is it going to venues and hanging out? So initially, I didn't get that connected, but I did start getting involved with the uh, college radio station, and I knew from the jump, like, oh, once I get to Marshall because they have a college station, like, that's my end. That's where I'm going to, like, find my scene or whatever because I liked the idea of doing radio and at that point had already been listening to a lot of, like, public radio or, like, um, 
non-commercial independent radio on the internet. So I had this idea of like what I wanted my experience to be almost. And for the first semester or so, I didn't get that involved. Uh, But then we, um, over the summer, the guy who was going to become our music director decided to drop out of Marshall and go to Bible college instead. Wow. And so we didn't have a music director, which means every week we have dozens and dozens of CDs piling up and like no one's going through them opening or whatever. And so it's like, I'll do it. Um, and I kind of um, fell into this position. And at the time, the college radio station, WMUL, would book this like yearly um, benefit concert called Cutting Edge Fest, um, which they haven't done it since I've been there, I don't think. But college radio is such like a cyclical, there's a cycle to it. People come and go all the time. Uh, so I realized, oh, if I'm going to have this position, I'm going to need to take up booking this event. And I'd never booked anything before. And I wound up going to now the Loud, then the V Club, uh, to talk to management there. The guy is booking it, being like, hey, how can I do things here? How can I um, book the room and like do this festival again? And it was just jumping into the deep end from there. Wow. Uh, so going into journalism, was it your intention to go into broadcast, or did you think you were going to be maybe a print guy? I don't know. You did. You had no idea. No, like, it's, I've, I don't want to say I don't have, like, dreams or, like, ambitions or anything, but. I just mean your interest. Yeah. Was your interest in. So my degree itself was in online journalism. Uh-huh. Uh, so specifically for like new media, uh, online outlets. So you would learn a little bit of everything, like a little bit of audio, a little bit of photography, video, whatever. Uh, now I think it's just a general journalism degree. They don't offer that like online specialization. It's all that way. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because but you went to school during the big pivot to video. Oh God, yeah, no it. <laughs> I went to school when um, MTV News hired a bunch of really cool music writers and journalists to do MTV News online as like a new outlet, whatever. And it was really cool for like eight months to a year. I remember that. Like when Jessica Hopper was running it, uh, I think Hanifa Durquib had did some writing they for laid it. Laid them all off. And then the big pivot to video happened and they all got laid off. Uh, and it was like this nice golden era, but then they all got laid off. But now you are expected to do everything yourself. Like if you're a TV reporter, you're expected to shoot your own video, cut your own packages, edit your own sound, all this stuff, uh, instead of having like someone help you. It's it's kind of depressing to think about, but... You, you get involved with the campus radio station. All of a sudden, you're booking shows. Uh-huh. Um, so there's like two points of connection because you, you're interviewing people. Uh-huh. I remember listening to some of your interviews, I think, from that time. Um, I got some big, now big names. I know. Little 
Timmy Childers was was on there at some point. Yeah, he and I were sitting about as close as we are now. The first time I ever saw him, he was playing on a little elevated stage in a parking lot downtown. Like it was a little like block party show on a Thursday or Friday night or something. And I'm sure no one was paying attention. Oh, it was just as people were starting to around uh-huh. here. Um, like, yeah, I've been to some Tyler shows where there have been maybe 15 to 30 people in the audience. But also I was at a lot of those shows at the V Club when you realized, oh, he's really starting to build steam. It's really about to become something. Uh, and it, it was just nice to watch. But also it was nice to know, like, I wasn't on the ground floor of it. I was maybe on like the second or third <laughs> You're on the story mezzanine. of it. But considering, you know, he's now like a hundred buildings. Yeah, no kidding. hundred stories tall or something. So you've got folks coming into the radio station and there's your point of connection. You're also booking shows. So then you're having to make connections with artists. I'm starting and, to do stand up. So I'm getting Yeah, to I was going to ask how, how did, was that related to starting to book shows and hanging out at venues or was that? Not really. It was just, I hadn't really done all that much stand-up. Because uh, you did improv in I high school. I did improv in high school, and I did, like, one open mic. And towards the end of the improv thing, I realized, like, improv is so dependent on the people you're doing it with that you really have to have a group of people who are giving themselves to the scene to make it the best they can be and to elevate the people that they're with. Uh, and It's like playing music in a band. And what we had to a certain extent was a bunch of high school kids who all wanted to be the funniest person on stage. So we're trying to, myself included, trying to one-up the others instead of making the best scene for the moment. It's like everybody trying to solo at once. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And the idea of doing stand-up was like, oh, if this fails, it's all on me. Like, I can't blame someone I'm doing the scene with. It is entirely my responsibility to be funny. And I kind of liked the challenge of being on my own after doing these group things for like two or three years. And the thing that's always interested me so much about uh, stand-up comedy is, like, as much as it is a performance art form, it is a... The homework you do before it counts for so much. The, it's such a writer's uh, art form, too. Yeah, if you don't prepare for it and respect the audience by preparing and writing or whatever shows on stage and it shows in the way people respond to you and the granule way that comedy writers joke writers think about their language has really always really been interesting you know what i mean like inserting and taking away a word can change the way a joke lands as somebody who's been in editing it 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 has always really amazed me how much attention that certain comedians but was that where did that interest come from? I mean, we all I've, we all had Comedy Central. We all watched stand-up specials of varying levels of quality. 
when did you think like, ah, that's what I want to do. I want to get on stage and perhaps like humiliate myself in front of a large group of people. It was just listening to a lot of those early comedy podcasts that kind of existed. Really? Okay. Like I was at the time listening to, and I still do to an extent, listening to a lot of WTF with Mark Marin back when he primarily interviewed stand-up comedians. And I listened to it just because I liked Mark and thought Mark was interesting. Uh, but listening to all of these different types of comedians that he had on uh, definitely drew me to the idea of like, oh, maybe this is something I want to give a try. That on top of just watching specials on Comedy Central. And you were, what attracted you to the, or, I mean, you kind of touched on that, like this is me alone, not depending on anybody else, but like something about the art itself probably. Just seemed fun. <laughs> just seemed fun. Yeah, just, seemed. just something to do. Like I think my ambitions with it now is just having it as an outlet. Like I'm not expecting to go anywhere with it, but if I'm, someone who has you know maybe a couple of headlining shows in town a year and then just mainly does open mics between all of that like that's fine it's nice to get to a point in your creative pursuits where the pressure of trying to become a success is gone and you're just doing it because you really enjoy doing it yeah you find yourself in a in a way i mean i'm doing it in a town with like 40,000 people. We have a very limited audience and the ceiling on doing it here is very low. And that's kind of nice. Did you enjoy the camaraderie that you've, uh, you know, cause when you're working an open mic, you've got other people there in a similar pursuit. So there's a community there. Yeah. Some of the people I've done it with here in Huntington have been my best friends in Huntington. Like I just had Nate Susco on the show. It was a great episode. A couple episodes ago and I met him through the stand up scene. I met our mutual friend Cody. And that's Lambert how you got into the, the, the scene. short videos too, right? Exactly. With through Nate. doing it in Huntington, just meeting him at stand up shows, expressing an interest in this sort of thing and just finding your people and running with it. This seems like a natural transition to the to the shorts that that you guys were making. Um, it was through meeting Nate at, at the old Black Sheep, right? That yeah, there across from Marshall, now Calamity J. You got hooked up and with that group and started making those things. Was, was that the? Was there any filmmaking between the stuff you were doing in high school and and when you got with Nate and his group? Or? Not really. What was? Uh, I mean, you guys were during to return to our reference of the pivot to video, like you hit there too. Like, yeah, we had a couple of things do pretty well on Facebook during a very brief period where Facebook decided that it was really going to push video and it fed your stuff to more pages than it would typically. And then they decided that they didn't want to do that anymore and then our views tanked. They turned off the algorithm. And Pretty much. They uh, they manipulated it to make people think, like, oh, this is the popular thing. And then they... Destroyed an entire industry. Yeah, and then, then a bunch of people got laid off because of it. And <sighs> then... Um, but you made some funny videos during that time. <laughs> it was a fun period. It was... Um, 
the what was your biggest success? The and and the group I'm I'm blanking on Co-Siri. the name. Siri. Uh the biggest success we had was this video that um our stand up friend Josh McDonald came up with about it was during that period where there were all of those like clown sightings that were happening. Oh my god, yeah. And it was like us trying to like humanize the guy that <laughs> stands in the woods as a clown. And it was a little like fake news piece. We really liked a lot of the stuff was like a mockumentary. It was either like a mockumentary or it was cut to look like a news package. Uh Uh, Because it's such a fun format to work within and you can do anything with it and have like any character. Because the premise is already established. Yeah. Of like, oh, this is a journalist taking a look at something. And the thing we're looking at is this weird clown. (laughs) And I think that one did like 40,000 views on Facebook. Dang. Uh, And were you having similar success on other platforms? Uh, YouTube, not so much. Most of the success was very Facebook driven. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did a... When they announced Fallout 76, I sent Nate a message being like, oh, we should make like a four or five episode miniseries where we kind of explain West Virginia culture to a new Fallout player to capitalize on the video game. But also people from West Virginia will eat up media about West Virginia. So if we make something that targets that audience, they're bound to share it. And we released the first, I want to say, two or three episodes before the game came out. And they did, like, fairly well, like, maybe 5,000 views or whatever. And then the game came out, and it was buggy as all get out, and no one liked it. I remember it was a huge disappointment. And as soon as the game came out and people realized, like, this isn't very good, the views on the episodes after the game came out just tanked. Did not do well. No interest at all. Yeah. I remember um, that game was met with similar excitement as WVU joining the Big 12. It's like, this is the new coal. We're (laughs) we're going to be the video game state. And all it's managed to do is ruin Fosnot. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back there. I went once and it was so fun. Pre-Fallout. Yeah. Um, The Fallout Fallout. Yeah, that video period of just making the sketches it was so fun just through the idea of like we would get most of the ideas just hanging out being like oh is this a good idea for a sketch and then one of us would like go and write it or maybe we'd do it as a group right and it was just a fun process and just very productive too even if nate did all of the video editing well and, and shooting being able to uh collaborate as part of a collective like that is really, um, that's always been one of my favorite things to do. Cause you feel like when you're, I, that's interesting. I, I, so your attraction to stand up is that you live or die by yourself, but here you have a, the opposite situation where you've got now a like-minded group of people striving for the same goal. Well, I think through that group is where I, truly learn to collaborate like yeah you do the like high school or college group projects or whatever but like being a part of a team where your goal is to make one like really good final piece of art and like finding out how you fit within that puzzle and not 
feeling the need to like solo over top of everything. Mm-hmm. The entire and time. like I've been, there were moments where looking back, I definitely realized, Oh, maybe I wasn't the best collaborator here. And maybe I was getting egotistical and in my head of like, Oh, why don't I have the really funny best part in this sketch? Whatever. Why don't I get to be like, I, but also looking back, it's because I wasn't the right person for those parts. And I don't know. I Now I'm just trying to get over myself and everything I do. Which, again, is why I cut out all the bits where I'm talking about myself about on yourself. the podcast. And yet here we are talking exclusively about, about you. me. Yeah, <laughs> it does feel a little weird. A little nice, but that's just the Leo in me coming out. You're a Leo. The attention, yeah. You're a Leo as well. Oh, yeah. When's your birthday? 820. I'm August 11th. All right. We'll have a group birthday party. Yeah, we should. Yeah. This explains a lot. I don't believe in astrology, but I kind of do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, William Athene is also a Leo. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) I don't know William at all. I don't know why I said that. I I like his music, but I'm not going to make value judgments about his personality. Um, That is interesting that... that, um, you found creative fulfillment in both solo and group pursuits. I think it's probably true of a lot of yeah a uh, lot of artists. But well, it's nice. It's different. It's, it's different nice to have your pet project that is like wholly yours, and you control everything. But it's also nice being a cog in the wheel. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you'll realize you have creative energy in one thing that's best served in this other way. Or maybe the collaborative project inspires what you do solo or vice versa. Uh, so it's just, it's nice to have all of these channels going at once. What do you consider your primary uh, creative project at, at this point? Is it this podcast? Probably the podcast. It's the thing I think about the most in terms of my own work. It's like, yeah, I do stand up but again that's mostly open mics and i do the photography thing but i haven't taken a picture in like weeks if really? i'm going to be honest yet like i don't walk around you, with uh, my camera not blowing smoke you're you're a, you have an eye for that thank you i appreciate yeah. it i feel like in some ways i do too much but it's because i'm trying to figure out what i'm like good or best at or like what's the thing that comes like intuitively versus the thing that you have to like work for like being a musician that's the thing that I have to work for Mm -hmm. but like I feel like I have a pretty good eye for a frame taking pictures so that maybe comes a little easier or that kind of feels like cheating when something comes easy doesn't it yeah it almost feels like you don't earn it in a yeah. way, but also it is like earned. You are doing the work. For every like two good pictures I've taken, there's 500 bad ones. Yeah, like people aren't going to see a majority of the pictures I've ever taken. Yeah, like writing is something that has never, ever, ever come easy for me. Like I've fought every single character I've ever put on the page. So when something I've written goes over well or I feel like I did a good job on it, I feel like, oh, yeah. But, like, 
I don't know what my photography would be, but if it's an easy thing, it feels like oh, I didn't really. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't sweat this. any blood over that. I didn't work for it. Yeah, but the the podcast is the thing you think the most about when you're artistically. Not, yeah, when you're not on the mic with somebody, what are you? Are you just? Is it guests you want to have or questions you want to ask your next guest? What is that homework you're doing? Sometimes I am thinking about who I want to have on and the research it would take to do a good conversation with them. Sometimes I'm thinking about the edit and how mm. I'm going to make the fade in and fade out of the theme song sound a little better the next time I do it. Is This is... This part's probably very boring to the average listener, but sometimes I'll be on the uh, multi-track mix thing on uh, Adobe Audition, and I'll be so unhappy with how the music fades in and out. And I can like maybe move it a few seconds and it'd be better, but also at a certain point, I just have to stop and export it and just you can finish get it. To, you can get to a point where the returns are diminishing and exactly. nobody is going to notice it. No, it's just me thinking about it too much. Like, ideally, what I messaged you about last night where it was like 5 p.m. and I hadn't had the episode recorded yet, but by the time I messaged you at 9 Nine. p.m., it was already uploading to my distributor and scheduled for this uh, for Friday. Like, ideally, that would just be the process of, like, record, get in there, start editing, and, like... The editing process is just however long the episode was because I'll listen to them like completely in the edit just so I can either take out parts that just aren't as compelling yeah. or maybe I breathed too much into the mic and I need to take that out because no one wants to listen to that. <laughs> yeah. Or even just like while you're talking, the breathing that will come through on, on the other side. side. Yeah. yeah. Like I'll cut all that out just so it's a better sound experience. Yeah. And even then, I know that like my audio mixing sometimes isn't great, but hey, it's. I What's try. your preparation like? What goes into when you have a guest? Because you've got folks like I mean, Shalem comes to mind, um, where he has a body of work online that you can go and look at. I'll just listen to a lot of it. Shalem was all I listened to for maybe two days leading wow. up to the interview. To just get in that mindset of like, oh, this is his work. This is what he does. Emily Hilliard, I read her book, Making Our Future. Just easy way to prep for that one. Just yeah. read the book. But with somebody like, um, I'm bad at names, um, the barber. Um, Jacob. Jacob. He's your barber. Yeah. But I guess he has, he has Instagram, but he didn't have a book you could read no is it just is it, when you're interviewing somebody who doesn't have a body of work that that's not neatly collected into a book or a spotify playlist his the reason i waited so long to do his was for like the tattoo artist i comes to um i waited to do his because I had that like long beard at the time and like my hair was starting to grow out a little bit and I was getting tired of it. So like, okay, I'll go in 
get a shave and a haircut, talk to him there. And that will be kind of my uh, background work, my research or whatever. Uh, But the tattoo one, I kind of approached that interview by being like, hey, here's my perception about the tattoo Mm -hmm. industry. Tell me why I'm wrong or like if I'm wrong and like just explain to me like the world of it. That's something I enjoy about um, commonplace is because it's not limited to just when you, you when you think of a culture podcast, you think of, okay, he's going to interview musicians and maybe visual artists and comedians or whatever but you ha- you and it's not it's not for lack of those people i mean you could if you just did musicians or visual artists or comedians in the state you could fill up a year or more of of podcasts but you you've expanded the scope of what um a podcast like this would include i feel like it's... and recognizing the creativity of a craft yeah, like exactly. cutting hair or I mean, tattooing, that's a visual art, but I don't think people lump it in in the same way. It is a trade, but also, again, it is artwork. They are making art, doing art. Uh, When someone comes in with, like, a picture of a haircut they want replicated, trying to find a way to replicate that is something that I couldn't even begin to do. But here's a guy who went to school for it, learned and has made people's heads into a way that he can express himself. And listening to him talk, it's it's almost like sculpting in a way. Yeah. Like you, you're taking a raw material and using, exploiting the qualities and the flaws of that raw material to create the thing you're trying to create. I, In some ways, I'm expanding the definition of what art can be. And like that's not like a thing I think about like consciously or whatever, really, if you do something that is a creative pursuit and it speaks to me in some form or I find it interesting, like I'm probably going to ask you on just because it seems cool. Talking to create, what, what do you, what made you want to do this? Not to use the C word, but we all went through the COVID pandemic. I thought you were going to say content. Ugh, (laughs) the worst word in the world. Don't even... uh, When you said the C word, that is... (laughs) God, no. Ugh, content. We all went through this very traumatic pandemic where we were all stuck in our homes, Mm, and we weren't getting that sort of, like, human connection that we might have wanted to have. And the thing that really, like, fulfills me is, like, talking to artistic people, finding out what drives them. The podcasts that I've listened to in the past that I've loved the most are the types where you're having that kind of conversation about just creative pursuits like the WTFs of the world. I was going to say, I mean, that that goes back to your early... in My first experiences with the medium... And even then, Joni Deutsch's uh, West Virginia music series at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, like helping her behind the scenes with some of those interviews. Right, I meant to touch on that, and was maybe we can circle back and get such that. such a cool, just formative experience. 
we hadn't really had something that served that kind of purpose. And it was nice to do my version of that thing. Like I, I had had the idea to maybe do something similar to this pre COVID too. Like, honestly, I should have started the show like four or five years ago, like out of college or whatever, just as like a side thing. But like coming out of college, like you're not sure if you're going to stay around or if you're going to wind up moving. So many things are up in there. And I didn't want to start a thing and then immediately kill it because I moved or whatever. Well, so I'm sure a lot of our list, a lot of the listeners will remember Joni's project, but for those that weren't around, you you were interning at public broadcasting at the time. For a right? summer. For did she do that for two years? She did it I maybe it was two in June. or three. But every day in June she would have a new long form edited, produced interview with a different West Virginia musician. Huge project. Oh yeah. A massive undertaking. And it was again, if you took those thirty interviews and you just did one every other week, you'd fill up your year calendar. She did a year's worth of podcasts in a month. What was it called? Uh, it was just uh, hashtag WV Music. It was under her um, the umbrella a of her of show, a change of tune. Mm-hmm. Which what a great show, Joni! What a great talent. Um, but you know, job opportunities came along, and and she did that for two, maybe three years. Mm-hmm. It was huge. I learned about so many West Virginia artists. Very popular. Like seeing, you would see different pockets of the overall scene share the different interview like each day. Like she might have talked to like Ian Thornton or William Matheny on one day and that would get like the Huntington or Morgantown crowd. But it was like a statewide thing. She would get people, you know. It was great for the state music scene. It was during that period a real shot in the arm, and it was nice that all of these bands, whether they have a little oomph behind them or they're just starting out, had a place they could go to and pitch themselves for media placements. And losing that and losing her, it I felt like in a way it was a momentum killer to a certain degree. Because there's no where else no and that is when i was at the daily mail we had two in charleston's in west virginia's most populous city we had two daily newspapers each with its own culture section each which would be mostly different every single week so you had on the front of that web uh, of that web page of that newspaper page you had at least three slots for stories and one would of course go to whoever was playing the civic center but like there was always room for a local band to get in. That's gone. Yeah, whoever was playing the glass or yeah. a blue parrot or whatever. And then, so that goes away. In about the same time that Joni's, you know, it goes down to one paper and you lose half of that coverage. But then Joni's thing appears and, you know, she did a valiant effort. and, and But, you know, opportunities came along and she left. You were, what was your role in helping her do that? I would... Do uh, I'd either be in the I was in the room a couple times during the interviews, kind of making notes of what the best parts were. A lot of it was just transcribing for the web uh, to have some kind of web element of just the best parts of it in text form. Some of it was uh, we 
worked on this thing together where we emailed all of the independent venues within West Virginia. So like one, two, three, um, the loud, uh, empty glass and uh, this bar called the 35th star that briefly existed down in Fayetteville for like a year or two. Yeah, I remember that place. And we talked to them about like, Hey, if you're a band, what's the best way to approach a venue? What stuff should you have on your website? Like what is the bare bones of like a press kit that, you know, an upstart band can have to help them get into a venue. So it wasn't just highlighting the bands that already existed. It was, it was highlighting was venues and trying to help trying people to help. elevate yeah. themselves. It was it was like an all-encompassing approach to building up the West Virginia music scene. Um, who was cutting those interviews? Who was editing that? Was that all Joni? I think it was all Joni. Again, sh- massive undertaking. Like, she definitely overworked herself, but also it was just a, a thing that I'm I'm even if I had not been again a very small cog and that whole thing I would have been an avid listener anyway just because of having something like that available do you see a through line to that from that to commonplace I think so I think the seeds and what I do were planted there um, between that, between doing interviews at the same time as Joni for the college radio station, doing the college radio stuff, and then just being a very avid podcast and like public radio listener, like that's the real like formative thing to to what I do now. What are you hoping? Um, what do you hope this podcast? accomplishes in the art scene like what what, when people are listening to it what are you hoping they get from it or what do you hope comes out of it i think the coolest thing that could happen from someone listening to this is they listen and they find someone that they really gel with either as a fellow creative person or a fan and if it gets someone a couple of gigs, that's cool. If it gets someone a new collaborator, that's really cool. If it gets someone like, even if it just gets someone like another like on Facebook or Instagram, like that, that's good too. You're hoping to serve as a point of connection. Yeah. It, to, I don't want to say networking tool because that feels very like Gross. business, yeah. shallow, whatever. But as long as cool people can meet each other, it's great. It's beautiful. But also, like, thinking about scaling up, too. I've because been, you just launched the Substack. Yeah, and that's just a, a place to put my own BS thoughts into, like, print form or whatever. Substacks like, are what blogs used blogs, to be. Blogs, essentially, yeah. yeah. Like, I'm not going to let an interview play out and then go on a monologue afterwards about what I think of the latest whatever album, comedy special, You do the whatever. being Cooley thing, David being Cooley thing after the Terry Gross interview? <laughs> I mean, like... It, you just be both Terry and David being Cooley? Yeah, be both of them. Uh, but, like, if you're listening to this, like, I hope that, like, you care more about what the guest says than I say. It's not about me, so I'm not going to interject my thoughts into the podcast i'd rather be that be its own separate thing 
But thinking about scaling up, even from the jump of like coming up with the name, the branding, how I describe it, I've been very conscious of not like advertising it as this like West Virginia art scene podcast, Appalachian art scene podcast. I was going to ask that because you don't really say that. You describe it as a podcast. What's the tagline? Uh, uh, the show creative about creative people. people and the things that inspire them. Which, again, is a little clunky to say. I don't say. think so. But what I, I was actually thinking about this on the way here. And I thought it must have been a conscious decision. Yeah. That you didn't, you're not calling this the wild, wonderful, creative podcast or whatever. And there are podcasts that do that great. My buddies at Mountain Made, another great podcast. It really serves their purpose. I'm not, yeah, I'm not criticizing anybody as somebody who makes very Appalachian-specific content myself. But uh, you said earlier that West Virginians will eat up any content about West Virginia. So you're leaving some listeners on the table by not calling this the Mothman, um, Mothman music pepperoni hour. roll music hour. Uh, I hate every bit of that. No, it's Nathan Thomas hates Mothman and pepperoni rolls, everybody. You're going to get me canceled. It has been a very conscious effort towards how I present the podcast, because if I ever scale up and I have people who are slightly more elevated or maybe even widely popular or whatever, if I ever get like a D or C list celebrity that has no connection to Appalachia or West Virginia whatsoever. I don't want to have this very West Virginia themed show and then have these outside guests on. You don't want to pigeonhole yourself. That make my audience feel like I've turned my back on what the show is. Yeah. So if I make a show that is not necessarily vague, but open-ended as to who I can have on, then I... You know, if someone cool comes through to the loud and they have like an hour before their show and I can talk to them or the Paramount and Ashland, it leaves more doors open as to who I can have open than if I just say, this is commonplace, the show about West Virginia creatives. But as for right now, where most of the people you're interviewing are from the Charleston or Huntington scene or whatever, just by the very nature of who you're booking on the show kind of serves that purpose without being explicit about it and keeps you from having to pigeonhole yourself Mm -hmm. so it's nice i can play to multiple audiences or multiple like thought processes at once without limiting myself to just one thing you said you hope through this podcast that maybe you help people discover somebody they didn't know before, get them another like on Facebook, whatever. Um, Is there a, you touched on this a little bit, but is there, is there a selfish reason that, that you want to interview all these creative people about what they do? I mean, yeah, it's nice to have people listening to your thing and interacting with the thing you do. I don't mean that. I mean, like I find as a journalist the thing I enjoy the most about it is that it gives me an excuse to talk to cool people. Not just that, but to like dig deep 
to ask them the questions like I maybe maybe not I, I would say everybody wants to ask. I don't know that everybody cares that deeply like <laughs> about other people's that inner would lives. Be weird if you just slid into their Instagram DMs and asked. Or I mean, even across from them at a coffee shop or a bar, it gives you an excuse to go deep. Yeah, it like you have someone like. Bunny Money, who I had maybe only talked to once or twice in passing before that interview, not know a lot about her background or anything, but then you sit down with her for an hour or an hour ten, however long that interview went, and we've become really great friends since then and have done a couple creative projects together. Uh, We're co-hosting the Huntington Music and Arts Festival. Wow this uh labor day weekend together and that's like a big accomplishment uh, that's for huge me. man it's very i didn't realize exciting. that congratulations yeah, i'm looking forward to it that is a thing where like tim year hosted it one year uh joni deutsch hosted it at the peak of her public radio power here within west virginia and like watching them host in the back of my head i was like man it'd be cool to do that be like a fun thing to get to do and i'm gonna get to do it with that this is cool artist that i have a deeper connection to because i got to interview her here and the kind of conversations that you're able to have are the things that you could only ever ask within a more formal interview setting within a more or unless you became like really good friends and it was like late at night and like you know uh, you know what i mean it's it, you you can't ask somebody about the internal pain that drives their art just at, you know, over dinner, but you can with a microphone yeah. in front of their face. You you can, if you're going to make fucking content out of it. Content. That's one, no, that's but, one thing I do like have this kind of like war in my head about like, is this podcast art or is it just content? Like what, what side of the fence am I on here? Uh, those aren't the only two options. Are, are they? I hope not, but it's it's my cross to bear. I keep referencing Terry Gross, but no, I I think there's. But also, Terry Gross is a good reference point for this sort of thing. It's granted she doesn't do interviews face to face like I do. That's what really interests me. About Did you her. ever hear Mark Maron interview Terry Gross in person? Yeah, yeah, the one stage thing. Yeah, that was strange. It was strange because she though. could not. She was very uncomfortable being interviewed. She was very uncomfortable not. Being and I in get the listeners seat. who don't know this: Fresh Air Terry Gross, the greatest on-air radio interviewer. Her her preparation is fantastic. Yeah, and she's done it like. 30 plus years at this point, whenever she's interviewing someone, it's not face to face. They're not even in the same building. They're just connected via just satellites and shit. They're in a radio booth in whatever city they're in. And it's she's in Philadelphia connected and she'll do the interview that way. Like, I guess they and she pr- attributes they pr- the depth mm-hmm. that she can go into to that disconnect. To that disconnect, which is, in my mind, in my experience of interviewing people, is the complete opposite. No, like, because you have people who, like, Mark Marin, who says a lot of his early interviews were so good, was because they did it in a little garage without AC in his backyard, and it 
that's how they were able to get you become so co-conspirators. Yeah. At, or, but just being able to look at somebody in the face. But oh. she attributes it to the intimacy of a dark room. I try to look into the eyes of everyone I interview just to get that like connection. Mm-hmm. One of my least favorite episodes that I did in this spot we're sitting in here. So the guest is sitting in my chair, mm-hmm. uh, but also it was at sundown and there was a big glare on their glasses and I couldn't see into their eyes. And I don't know if that's just me being too in my head about it, but part of me is like, I didn't get the connection I wanted to there. And had I been able to actually look into their eyes, it would have been a a better conversation probably. It is the only time I like looking into people's eyes because I try to avoid it. Sometimes you interview people who are not used to talking about the thing that they do in an in-depth way. And you ask in-depth questions about their process and their art. Do they, is it a relief for them? Do they, like, oh, finally somebody asked me about this. Or is it weird? Do they have trouble breaking it down? I think it's really dependent on who the guest is. I've definitely had conversations where it was maybe their first sit-down interview or maybe just first interview, period. And maybe they did have their guard up a little, but that's part of the battle as an interviewer is to to form that sort of bond where you can make them more comfortable and not necessarily get them to say something they weren't expecting to uh, because I'm not trying to like... It's not gotcha journalism. Yeah, no. I'm just trying to connect with another person on a deeply artistic level. So, yeah, I'm sure there has been some hesitation, and there definitely has been, and I'm not going to name names or anything, there have definitely been interviews that have been more of a battle than others, but also that's kind of what makes it fun Mm -hmm. as an interviewer. Like, the first five episodes, maybe, I was very... uh, I, I... definitely tried to have like a list of questions in front of me and a little notebook or whatever. But once I got more comfortable being back on a mic again, I kind of ditched the notebook and just kind of went off the top of my head that way. Like I wasn't looking down at anything or being distracted and I could just be in the moment with whoever I was interviewing. So often uh, in journalism, I've had PR people. It's always the PR people who email me and ask me for a list of questions. I'm like, I don't, I haven't made a list of questions in a very long time, and and it it becomes a a barrier between you and making the connection with the person that you're trying to talk to. Yeah, and luckily I haven't had the experience of like having to go through a publicist before actually talking to the guest all of my email not necessarily emails but like you've Facebook directly with messages them. Instagram it's all been directly with the person and sometimes I would like hit up a friend who's like their booking agent or whatever but they would just give me the person's cell phone number and we'd work it out one-to-one right but also I'm not 
interviewing like bigger acts or anything. I've just been interviewing people who on any given Friday night I can go see downtown. And I'm sure as it grows and gets bigger, dealing with the publicist and having to request the interview through the publicist will be a, a thing that happens. But right now, it's nice being able to have every moment of the process be just me and the person. Do you have, like, bucket list guests that yeah, you want? I feel like every show like this definitely has, like, the big guests. Um, and, you know, it'd be cool to talk to, like, John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats. That'd be a, a fun one. Talking to Tyler Childers again after all the, these years would be a fun experience. It's been interesting watching him become a better interviewee. Mm-hmm. Well, even then, he doesn't really do interviews all that much anymore. No. He will, like, if he'll have, like, a bigger, like, magazine profile, but he's not doing press for, like, every show on his tour or whatever. Like, he's not talking to the... uh, Doesn't have to. No, his tickets sell. He doesn't need to do it, and he can keep his life private, and honestly, I'm kind of into it. He is an artist who likes letting the work speak for itself. Uh, there will be times where, like, with the long, violent history, he did come out with the he, video explaining it. He had to, it. because pe- <laughs> people didn't understand. Well, the- even then, that video came out the same day as the album. Like, it felt like a pre-planned thing. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Oh, yeah, it came out day There was of- no time for there to be a blowback the album came out surprise at midnight and then the video was uploaded by morning i'm pretty sure so it must have been something they had in the can there was only like nine or ten hours in between the album releasing and the explainer um but he is a guy who like i interviewed twice him being signed to a major country music label and to go from the growth of like I'm just interviewing him as he's on the phone for the uh, the college newspaper and like he told me that he was like pulled onto the side of the highway so he can like talk on the phone real quick that was like five or ten minutes for just a quick write up and then our little in-studio session just being able to track that growth would be fun. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, there are the ideas of like the big dream guests, but also I like the idea of leaving myself open to the, uh, the wonder of it all almost. And just seeing what comes my way or seeing like who I think to reach out to. It sounds like to me that an interest in creativity and artists and the things that inspire them has been something that you've been interested in for a very long time. So it would it would require like let's say you get burned out of making the podcast and you don't want to do that anymore. Part of the reason I had to switch from every week to every two weeks burnout is is a killer 
But I, I, I don't think you're going to lose the interest in having these kinds of conversations. Yeah, I think that it goes back to like reading guitar magazines and yeah. stuff, practicing. It's just, it's a nice way to That's, interact with art without having to do the work that it takes to make art. But also, in a way, it becomes my own art through that. That's such an interesting throwback. But if you think about those guitar magazines, there was somebody like you who was interviewing who? Who Who do you remember reading I about? I don't know. I remember there was Slash. one profile about the band Disturbed. And like, even though I didn't really like the band, I thought, like, oh, this is a well-written profile. But there was somebody like you who was asking them the questions and writing that piece, and you got something out of it. And, and so, like, this is part of the ecosystem, right? Like, mm-hmm. this, is, this is part of... Instead of writing like a a thousand word Rolling Stone article, I'm doing an hour long podcast. I for one appreciate the, uh, the attention that you are putting on local creators. It's nice to be able to pull something up on my podcast feed and hear people from around here talk about the things that they do. Um, I've certainly been introduced to people that I didn't know existed. Um, and art that I that I didn't know I liked. I've discovered a lot of stuff through this podcast. And the people that I do know and, and maybe have even interviewed myself in the past. It's inter it's interesting to hear somebody else go through their story with them and see what gets brought out. Thank you to Zach Harold for stepping in the interviewer's chair. You can find a link to his latest story in the episode description, but really you should go back and listen to his archives too. We will be taking a short break. I'm going on vacation the week the next episode is supposed to drop, so instead the next new show will come out August 4th. Thank you for listening to Commonplace. If you liked today's episode, I ask that you subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend. These are free ways that help the show in a big way. The show is hosted and produced by me, Nathan Thomas. Our theme song is Rescue by Goodwolf from the album Car in the Woods. We'll be back again very soon with another episode of Commonplace. Commonplace.